sweet land of liberty, our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinach. Welcome back to Freedom's Ring, my friends. Well, famously, Thomas Jefferson referred to the First Amendment's prohibition on religious establishments as creating a wall of separation between church and state. Actually, uh, to be more precise, he regarded both clauses, free exercise as well, as being part of that wall. But in recent court decisions, it remains doubtful whether there really is anything left to the Establishment Clause, the principle of government not establishing religion. Our guest today, Professor Alan Brownstein, is uh, Emeritus First Amendment Scholar at UC Davis Law School, and my good friend. Alan, welcome back to Freedom's Ring. Yeah, good to be here again, Alan. So, I've entitled this show, The Demise of the Establishment Clause. Is that too strong? Are we looking at saying, you know, having a funeral service for the Establishment Clause? What's your view on that? I don't think it's too strong. I think there may be some residual elements left of the Establishment Clause, but what the current court is interpreting the Establishment Clause to mean, I think, is little more than that the government can't create an ecclesiastical hierarchy. And the Establishment Clause has been understood to mean much more than that, historically and over the last two centuries. And I think the current court is is rejecting decades of Establishment Clause doctrine. And it's doing it in an incredibly cavalier fashion. Well, let's talk about at least a couple of the recent cases. First of all, a main case, Carson against Macon, that, you know, really has to do with when government can directly fund religious schools. What was significant about this case? Well, I think what was most significant about this case is that the court makes it clear that it has no objection. It sees no constitutional objection to government funds being used to subsidize religious services, all forms of religious activities. Uh, There was at least an argument available after Trinity Lutheran and Espinoza that the government could not discriminate against an institution because of its religious identity, but it could limit the use of government funds and preclude them from being employed for explicitly sectarian purposes. The Carson case makes it clear that that's no longer a consideration for the court and that government funding can be required by the Constitution to subsidize religious institutions using those public funds for explicitly religious activities. And in coming to that conclusion, the court invokes this mantra of history and tradition, right? Well, it claims to. It's not at all clear that history supports its contention or that the text does. The text says government cannot prohibit the exercise, the free exercise of religion. It's an enormous stretch 
to move from that language to say that the government has to subsidize religious activities. One would ordinarily not think that the failure to subsidize is a prohibition against the exercise of religion. And with regard to uh, history, well, of course, we have all of the discourse during the Virginia debates about government funding of religion and religious activities. We have Madison and Jefferson arguing vociferously against government being permitted to do that. And if we move later on to the Reconstruction Amendments, the 14th Amendment in 1868, I think the history is pretty clear. And at that time, Americans overwhelmingly rejected the idea that government should be funding religious schools or other religious institutions. Well, at the time of the 14th Amendment, this was really before the whole conflict between Catholic parochial schools and the public schools, which the Catholics regarded as essentially Protestant, right? Because that came more like the 1880s and 1890s. I think it uh, was actually somewhat earlier than that. I think you can certainly say that it extended through the 1880s and the 1890s, but I think there's a lot of language from political leaders in the the early 1870s that suggests that they viewed government funding of religious schools as constitutionally problematic. So, you know, my sense of the court's approach to history and tradition when it comes to this whole issue of government funding of religion is that from, you know, 1947, in the first case involved, you know, whether the state of New Jersey could provide bus transportation for parochial schools, right up until 2000 with the Mitchell versus Helms case, the general approach of the Supreme Court was to say, Well, the Establishment Clause, you know, generally prohibits funding of religion and religious schools, but we're going to look at, you know, where are their carve-outs, where are their exceptions to this rule? And and they generally invoke the history of Virginia as representative of, you know, the values of colonial America, that religion be set free from government regulation and government support and, and all of that. And it's since Mitchell versus Helms in 2000, we no longer see Virginia's history invoked. We see history and tradition in support. And the whole paradigm has been flipped upside down so that uh, restricting government funding of religion is now what is suspect. I think what you said is correct. The court has uh, turned a prior doctrine on its head, basically. What was constitutionally suspect is now constitutionally required. And, you know, in Everson, in late 1940s, you really had a unanimous court that expressed serious concerns about government funding of religion. Where the court drew lines and permitted government funding were situations where, in a world where government plays such a significant role in society, that in certain circumstances, to say that government resources cannot be used to assist religion would disfavor religion and really severely handicap the ability of religious individuals and institutions to practice their faith. So a fire department comes to put out a fire at a church. 
and government resources being used in a way that assists a religious institution. But no one thinks that that violates the Establishment Clause. And the Supreme Court justices certainly distinguished cases like that from the circumstances in Everson. When you have a very, very general government program that promotes the welfare of everyone, um, churches and religious individuals are equally eligible to receive fire department protection, police department protection, and the like. The sidewalks, as it is often said, can extend to the door of a church. But that is totally different from what the court is deciding in a series of cases that it's adjudicated over the last five years. Now you're talking about government funds being used to support religious activities. And the scope of the programs at issue are nowhere near as general as police protection right. or the protection provided by fire departments or sidewalks. These are relatively narrow laws that are being interpreted, I should say, are being adjudicated in a way that prevents government from limiting resources to secular institutions and activities. To add, because I do want to move on and talk about the Coach Kennedy case briefly, I moved recently to Arizona, which has the some of the lowest teacher pay in the nation, the poorest performing public schools, and instead of beefing up funding for the public schools, Arizona just passed a billion-dollar giveaway for private education, which, from where I sit, is an effort to bury the public schools and eventually completely replace them almost entirely with private education, which is predominantly religious. So anyway, moving on, you know, the other part of the Establishment Clause has to do with how government relates to its employees actually engaging in religious activities while they're on duty representing their, you know, government employer and how that is problematic from a religious freedom standpoint. And the recent case I'm sure all of our listeners have heard about is the football coach in Bremerton, Washington, Coach Kennedy, and the decision in that case. But Professor Brownstein, how does that decision also really undermine the values of the Establishment Clause? The Establishment Clause imposes several constraints on government. One, it limits the government's ability to promote certain religious beliefs over others. It imposes a requirement of religious equality. Uh, second, mention in the Establishment Clause that protects people from religious coercion, and that can be uh, religious employees who are subject to coercion by their superiors. It can be individuals who are vulnerable to state-imposed sanctions or who are dependent on the state for receiving benefits. And in all of those situations, when government has the discretionary authority to either grant benefits or impose sanctions on third parties, if the government officials or employees engage in prayer or proselytizing or other religious activities that's directed at a captive audience that is dependent on these government officials and employees to decide whether the third party 
gets uh, benefits to which they might be eligible or is subject to sanction. In those situations, religion becomes a coercive club that severely burdens the freedom of dependent individuals, of potential beneficiaries of government law, Jess. And there are easy Well, to apply this to the, you know, the football case, you know, Coach Kennedy has the, the role of writing letters of recommendation for his players to obtain scholarships. He doesn't have to tell them that they should join him in prayer for, you know, for the situation to be coercive. That's right. You know, they know that they need to get in good with the coach, right? That's right. The coach determines how much playing time uh, each player has. The coach facilitates a player admitted to college, sends letters of recommendation and the like. The coach example is a particularly powerful one because coaches have so much discretionary authority over the well-being of their players. And in this case, the court refused to recognize any type of coercion, which suggests that, you know, only the most egregious forms of coercion may yet come under scrutiny by this court. Well, I think that's right. The court seemed to say that if you think you're being coerced because you'd be punished, if you don't participate in the prayer, you have to prove that people have actually had less playing time or haven't gotten recommendations from the coach unless they participated in prayer activities. And those kinds of showings are virtually impossible to prove. That's what it means when we say that the government official has discretionary authority. They can make so many decisions based on indeterminate and unstated reasons that anyone who is subject to their decision-making will necessarily worry that if they're not in the coaches or the teachers or the judges' good graces, they will suffer the consequence. Well, I wish we had much more time for this discussion. Our guest today, Professor Alan Brownstein, we've been discussing the demise of the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. As always, I'm your host, Alan Reinach. Until next week, let freedom ring.